Part 12 of Works of Sallust. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chester. Works of Gaius Celestius Crispus. Translated by Alfred W. Pollard. Ugarthene War Part 3 My subject seems to require that I should briefly explain the position of Africa and touch upon the races with which we have been at war or in alliance, of the regions and tribes which, on account of the heat, ruggedness, or desert nature of the country, have been less often visited. I could hardly, did I wish it, give any certain account the rest I shall deal with as briefly as possible. In dividing the earth, most writers have made Africa a third continent. If you hold that only Asia and Europe can be reckoned as such, and that Africa forms a part of Europe, it is bounded on the west by the strait that unites our sea with the ocean, on the east by a shelving plain called by the inhabitants Catabathmos. The sea is stormy and harborless, the soil productive and good for pasture, but wanting in timber, while both rainfall and springs are scanty. The natives are healthy, nimble, and inured to toil, except the victims of wild beasts and the sword, few succumb to any disease but old age. It must be added that the number of dangerous animals is large. As to who were the original inhabitants of Africa, and who subsequently arrived, or how the races intermingled. I know that my account differs from the received opinion. I shall, however, briefly present it as it was interpreted to me from the Punic books said to have belonged to King Hempsel, and as the inhabitants of the country believe the events to have taken place. For the truth of the version, my informants must be responsible. The original inhabitants of Africa were Gaetulians and Libyans, savage and barbarous peoples, living off the flesh of wild beasts, or, like cattle on the grass of the field, they were controlled by no customs or laws, nor by any chief, wandering aimlessly about, they occupied such quarters as night compelled. But after Hercules, for so the Africans believe, died in Spain, his leaderless army which was made up of various races, dispersed itself abroad, as his followers sought to win themselves demands on this side or that. Of his troops, the Medes, Persians, and Armenians crossed in ships to Africa, and settled on the lands nearest to our own sea. The Persians took of their abode nearest to the ocean. They turned the hulls of their boats upside down, and used them as huts, for there was no timber in the land and no means of obtaining it by purchase or barter from Spain, as the wide sea and their ignorance of the language made commerce impossible. Gradually the Persians, by intermarriage, absorbed the Gaetulians, and, as in their frequent search for suitable lands, they had wandered widely from place to place, took the name of nomads. To this very day the dwellings of the Numidian country people which they call Mapelia, 
are of an oblong shape and curving roofs which resemble the keels of boats. The Medes and Armenians were reinforced by Libyans, a people who lay closer to the African Sea while the Gaetulians lived more directly beneath the sun, near to the zone of intensest heat. The combined nation early possessed towns, for as they were but divided by a strait from Spain, they had formed the practice of mutual barter. Their name was in course of time perverted by the Libyans, who in their barbarous speech called them Mori instead of Medes. The power of the Persians rapidly increased, and subsequently a part of them, under the name of Numidians, separated from the parent stock, on account of their growing numbers, and settled on the territory round Carthage, which is now called Numidia. Thenceforth, each in reliance on the other support, by the terror of their arms, they forced their neighbors to submit to their rule, and won for themselves glory and renown. This was more especially the case with those whose territory extended to our sea, for the Libyans are less warlike than the Gaetulians. At last, the greater part of the coast of Africa was occupied by the Numidians, and the conquered were all merged in the race and name of their lords. At a later date, the Phoenicians, some wishing to win dominions, others to lessen the home population, urged the commons and such others as were eager for change to emigrate, and founded Hippo, Hadramentum, Leptis, and other cities along the coast. These quickly rose to importance, and served in some cases as a defense, in others as an ornament to their parent states. As to Carthage, I think it better to be silent than to give an inadequate account, for time warns me to hasten to another subject. After the Catabathmos, which divides Egypt from Africa, the first place as you follow the coast is Cyrene, a colony of Thera. Next to this come the two Syrtes, and between them Leptis, then the altars of the Philaeni, the boundary of the Carthaginians on the side of Egypt, and after this, other Punic cities. The rest of the land, as far as Mauritania, is held by the Numidians. Mauritania lies nearest to Spain. To the south of Numidia, I learned that the Gaetuli lived, some in huts, others wandering about in a more barbarous state. Beyond these are the Ethiopians, and beyond them again, lands dried up by the burning heat of the sun. In the Ugarthene War, most of the Punic towns and the lands which the Carthaginians had owned just before their fall were governed by the Roman people through magistrates. A great part of the Gaetulians and the Numidians, as far as the river Melucha, were under Jugurtha, while the ruler over all the Mauritanians was King Bacchus, who knew nothing of the Roman people save their name, and had hitherto been brought beneath our notice neither in peace or war. The foregoing account of Africa and its people will suffice for our needs. 
When the kingdom had been divided, the commissioners left Africa, and Jugurtha found himself, in spite of his fears, in possession of the reward of his crime. He now took the maxim which he had heard from his friends at Numantia, that at Rome all things might be bought, for an assured truth, and excited by the promises of the men whom he had recently glutted with his gifts, turned his thoughts toward the kingdom of Adderbal. He himself was of an active and warlike nature. The man he assailed was quiet and peace-loving, of a gentle disposition, which laid him open to injury, and one who rather felt than inspired fear. He therefore suddenly marched into Adderbo's territory with a large force, seized many prisoners, with cattle and other booty, burnt buildings, made cavalry raids on many places, and then retreated with his whole force into his own kingdom. In the belief that indignation would make his victim avenge his wrongs by arms, and that such a step would give rise to war. Adabel, however, feeling himself no match for Jugurtha in arms, and placing more reliance on the friendship of the Roman people than on his Numidian subjects, sent ambassadors to Jugurtha to complain of this aggression, and although the answer they brought back was insulting, determined to endure anything rather than embark on a war since his former attempt had ended so unfavorably. This availed nothing to lessen the greed of Jugurtha, for he was already in imagination possessor of the whole kingdom. Not as before with the band of marauders, but at the head of an army duly equipped, he began open war, undisguisedly seeking dominion over all Numidia. On his march, he laid waste cities and fields, carried off booty, and threw fresh heart into his own men, fresh fear into the enemy. Adabel now understood that matters had reached such a pass that he must either abandon his kingdom or defend it by arms. Under the pressure of necessity, he mustered his forces and advanced against Jugurtha. And now the army of either king took up a position near the town of Serta, not far from the sea. But, as it was late in the day, battle was not given. When, however, the night was far advanced, in the darkness that still prevailed, the soldiers of Jugurtha, at a given signal, fell upon the enemy's camp, and scattered and routed its defenders, who were but half awake or in the act of seizing their arms. Adabel, with a few horsemen, made his escape to Serta, and had not there been a number of Roman citizens in the place who stopped the Numidian pursuers from entering the wall. A single day would have seen the beginning and the end of the war between the two kings. As it was, Jugurtha blockaded the town, and set about reducing it by means of mantlets, towers, and engines of every kind. Using the greatest haste in forestalling the ambassadors whom he had heard that Adabal had sent to Rome before the battle took place. When the Senate received news of their war, it dispatched three young men to Africa 
to go to both kings and acquaint them in the name of the Roman Senate and people that it was their will and determination that they should lay down their arms and decide their disputes by arbitration instead of war. Such a course, they were to say, would be worthy both of their advisers and of themselves. The commissioners speeded on their journey to Africa, or the more because, while they were making their preparations for departure, news was received in Rome of the battle and the siege of Serta, though the report dealt lightly with the facts. After listening to their address, Jugurtha replied that nothing carried more weight with or was dearer to him than the authority of the Senate. From his early manhood, he said, he had used every effort to win the approval of the good. It was his merit, and not any cunning devices, that had recommended him to the noble Scipio. These same qualities, and not any lack of children of his own, had caused Mesipsa to adopt him into the royal family. For the rest, the more proofs he had given, of his devotion and energy, the less was he inclined to submit to wrong. Adderbal had conspired to take his life, and on discovering the plot, he had taken up arms against his guilt. The Roman people would be acting neither rightly nor for their own interests if they had hindered his exercise of the law of nations. Lastly, he was intending shortly to send ambassadors to Rome to explain the whole state of affairs. After this, they separated. Adderbal, the commissioners, had no means of addressing. Jugurtha, as soon as he judged that they had left Africa, finding it impossible on account of its situation to take Serta by storm, threw a rampart and trench round its walls, raised and garrisoned towers, and while assailing the town night and day by attacks both open and disguised, held out to the guardians of its walls now promises and now threats, roused his men to courage by his exhortations, and in fine showed himself bent on making every possible provision. Meantime Adabel perceived that his fortunes were desperate, his enemy implacable, himself without hope of help, and that, from lack of the requisite means, the war could not be prolonged. He therefore chose the two most enterprising of his fellow fugitives to Serta, and, by large promises and pitiful allusions to his own plight, encouraged them to make their way by night through the enemy's lines to the nearest point on the coast, and thence to Rome. In a few days, the Numidians carried out his orders, and Adabel's letter was read in the Senate. Its purport was as follows. It is through no fault of mine, Senators, that I send so often to you to employ your help. I am compelled to do so by the violence of Jugurtha, who has been seized with such a passion for my destruction, that unmindful alike of yourselves, and of the immortal gods, he prefers my blood to all else beside. Hence, it is that I, the friend and ally of the Roman people, have now been besieged for more than four months, and that neither the services of my father Mesipsa, 
nor your decrees avail me aught. I am pressed by sword and famine, by which the harder I cannot say. My previous fortune dissuades me from writing more about Jugurtha. I have already discovered how little the wretched are believed. It may be, however, that I am right in my conviction that my foe is aiming at a higher mark than myself, and that he does not expect to retain at once your friendship and my kingdom. Which of the two he holds of more importance is obvious enough. He began by murdering Hempsall, my brother, and then ousted me from my ancestral kingdom. These wrongs, I admit, were personal to myself and did not touch you, but now he is in armed possession of a kingdom which belongs to you, and is keeping me, whom you made rule over the Numidians, a closed prisoner. How little weight he attaches to the words of your commissioners, my danger may serve to show. What means, then, of moving him is there? other than the might of Rome. For myself, I could wish that the words I am now writing, and those in which I once made my complaint in the Senate, told an idle story, rather than that they should be confirmed at the cost of my own misery. But as I was born to give Jugurtha scope for the display of his wickedness, I crave no relief from death or hardship. I only seek to be saved from the tyranny of an enemy and bodily torture. Make what provision you will for the kingdom of Numidia, for it is your own, but rescue me from this unhallowed grasp. This I entreat of you by the dignity of your empire, by the loyalty of your friendship, and by whatever memory of my ancestor, Massinicia, still lingers among you. On the reading of this letter, some propose the despatch of an army to Africa for the immediate rescue of Adderbal, and that meanwhile they should discuss Jugurtha's conduct in disobeying the commission. Every effort, however, was used by the king's old partisans to prevent such a decree being passed, and, as generally happens, the public good was overruled by private interests. Commissioners, however, were sent to Africa of a more advanced age, of noble birth, and who had filled high offices of state. Among their number was the Marcus Scaurus, of whom I spoke above, a man who had been consul and at that time was leader of the Senate. The matter was exciting audium, and the prayers of the Numidians were urgent. The ambassadors therefore embarked on the third day and, after a quick passage to Utica, sent a dispatch to Jugurtha, commanding his immediate attendance in the province, and announcing their commission to him from the Senate. Jugurtha, on hearing that men of distinction, whose influence in Rome he knew by report, had come to bar his proceedings, was at first greatly disturbed, and wavered between the impulses of fear and passion. He was afraid of the anger of the Senate should he fail to obey the commissioners. While the vehemence of his desire blindly hurried him along to complete his crime, the result in his covetous nature 
was the victory of the evil course. Encircling Serta with his army, he strained every nerve to force his way into the town, and was filled with hope that, could he divide the strength of the enemy by assault or stratagem, victory would fall to his lot. His efforts failed, and he could not attain his object of seizing Adderbal before meeting the commissioners. Fearful, therefore, lest further delay should anger Scaurus, of whom he was most afraid, he entered the province attended by a few horsemen. But though serious threats were uttered in the name of the Senate, if he did not raise the siege, after much parleying, the commissioners departed without having effected anything. When this news reached Serta, the Italians, whose courage was defending its walls, confident that the greatness of the Roman people would secure their safety on its surrender, advised Adderbal to deliver up himself and the town to Jugurtha, only bargaining for his life, and leaving everything else to the care of the Senate. Adderbal judged any course preferable to reliance on the word of Jugurtha, yet saw that, should he resist, his advisers had power to compel, and therefore made the surrender. Jugurtha's first act was to torture and put him to death. Next he made an indiscriminate massacre of all the adult Numidians and the traitors as they came in contact with his troops. When this was known in Rome and the matter began to be discussed in the Senate, the old supporters of the king attempted by wasting time over questions and quarrels and by the exercise of private influence to soften the enormity of the offense. Indeed, had not Gaius Memmius, a tribune-elect, an active man, and an enemy to the power of the nobility, apprised the people that their object was to enable a few partisans to gain Jugurtha pardon for his crime by the delay of the inquiry, all public feeling against the king would have subsided. Such was the power of his wealth and influence. The Senate, however, conscious of its guilt, feared the people, and in accordance with the Sempronian law, Numidia and Italy were assigned to the consuls of the next year as their provinces. The consuls elected were Publius Scipio Nasica and Lucius Calpurnius Bestia. Calpurnius received Numidia and Scipio Italy. An army was then levied for service in Africa. And pay and what else was needed for the conduct of the war voted. Jugurtha received the news of all this with great surprise. So firmly planted in his mind was the belief that at Rome everything could be bought. He now sent his son and two intimate friends as ambassadors to the Senate, and instructed them, as he had done those sent after the murder of Hempso, to attack every soul in Rome with bribes. On their drawing nigh to the city, the Senate was consulted by Bestia as to whether it was their pleasure that the ambassadors of Jugurtha should be received within the walls, and a decree was passed that, unless they had come to surrender his kingdom and person, they should leave Italy within the next ten days. The consul ordered notice to be given 
to the Numidians pursuant to the decree, and accordingly they departed home with their mission unfulfilled. Meanwhile, Calpurnius, now that his army was ready, chose for his staff party men of noble birth, whose authority he hoped would shield any misconduct of his own. Among them was the Scaurus, of whose disposition and character I have spoken. As for our consul, he had many good qualities, both of mind and body, but his avarice hampered the exercise of them all. He had great power of endurance, a keen intellect, and considerable forethought, was not ignorant of war, and never dismayed by danger or sudden attack. The legions were taken through Italy to Regium, thence to Sicily, and from Sicily to Africa. After organizing his commissariat, Calpurnius at first vigorously attacked Numidia, capturing many prisoners and taking several towns by storm. When, however, Jugurtha began through ambassadors to tempt him with bribes, and to show him the difficulty of the war he was conducting, his resolution, weakened by covetousness, readily succumbed. As colleague and assistant in all his proceedings, he adopted Scaurus, who, though at first, when many of his party had already been perverted, he had strenuously resisted the king, was now by the magnitude of the bribe offered seduced from the path of virtue and integrity and to that of dishonor. Jugurtha began by purchasing no more than a delay in the war, thinking that in the meanwhile his bribery or influence might affect something at Rome. But the news that Scaurus was taking part in the intrigue led him to form the highest hopes of regaining peace, and he determined to treat with the commissioners personally on all the conditions. Meanwhile, to inspire confidence, the consul sent his quaestor, Sextius, to Varga, a town of Jugurthus, ostensibly to receive the corn which Calpurnius had openly demanded of the ambassadors in return for the grant of a truce till the surrender should be made. On this, the king, in pursuance of his plan, came to the camp, and after saying a few words in the presence of the council about the ill will excited by his deed and his desire to be allowed to submit, arranged all other points in a secret conference with Bestia and Scaurus. On the following day, the opinion of the council was taken amid an irregular discussion, and Jugurtha's submission was received. In accordance with the command given in the presence of the council, thirty elephants, a large number of cattle and horses, together with a small sum in silver, were delivered to the Christor. Calpurnius then set out for Rome to hold the elections, and peace was observed in Numidia and in our army. When rumor spread the news of the events in Africa and of the way in which they had been brought about, the conduct of the council was discussed at every place and every assemblage in Rome. Among the common people his unpopularity was great, while the senators were anxious and undecided whether they should sanction so serious a crime or annul the consul's ordinance. 
the chief obstacle to their following the true and upright course was the influence of Scaurus, the reputed advisor and accomplice of Bestia. But while the Senate was hesitating and raising delays, Gaius Memmius, of whose independent character and hatred of the power of the nobility I spoke above, roused the people to vengeance by his addresses, bade them not to betray the Republic and their own freedom, exposed many instances of the pride and cruelty of the nobility, and in fine showed great energy in exciting the populace by every possible means. End of Ugarthine War Part 3